Hi, welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel publishing news recorded somewhere in the world by people talking. I'm Heidi McDonald. I am the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly and the editor-in-chief of The Beat at comicsbeat.com. You can check us out on Twitter at, at PW Comics World and on Facebook at, at PW Comics World. I'm Kate Fitzsimmons. I'm the podcast producer. And you can find us online on Tumblr at pwcomicsworld.tumblr.com. And we are recording this week from remote locations uh, scattered around. Calvin is on vacation, and Kate and I are once again holding the fort. We do this like once a year, once or twice, once a year. Uh, one, we all, all go on vacation for a little bit. So uh, Kate and I will run down the news this week. And so in this week's episode, let me see. Netflix buys Miller World. Uh, Milestone has a lawsuit. Digital manga surpassing print. And sales trends. And a look forward at FlameCon. So, uh, you know, August usually doesn't have a lot of news. But there's kind of a lot going on right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first week after... San Diego Comic Con. I was like, "It's dead. It's going to be dead for a while." And then, boom! Yeah, it seems everything like, went back into full swing. It did. It seemed like a lot of uh, seeds that were planted have come to fruition. So, uh, well, Netflix made its first content acquisition of all times by buying Miller World, which is Mark Miller's a suite of comics that includes well it sort of includes wanted and kick-ass and things like uh nemesis let's see what do we have like jupiter's children uh huck uh he's done lots of books in under the empire empire yes uh he is a prolific scotsman i'll say that um so basically uh, a big announcement went out from netflix and from miller himself uh, denouncing this big deal, and uh, to be honest, I wasn't quite sure what the deal entailed. <laughs> it says that they'll be developing stuff based on Miller's comics. However, it does not include Kick-Ass and Kingsman, which are both uh, movies coming out from other studios. So all the rights are tied up in all those already. So Netflix will not be doing Kingsman and Kick-Ass TV shows or movies or streaming or whatever. Uh, but b- b- un- uh, unmentioned in the entire thing is who would be publishing the comics. I guess the comics were an afterthought to this deal. Uh, most of Miller's books are published at Image right now, but I asked uh, Image if they would continue, and they had no comment. So, uh, Wither Miller World? I don't know. Now, this got a lot more interesting just a couple days later when Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, announced that they would be starting their own streaming service that would run Disney-branded content. He was asked specifically about whether the Marvel-branded content, such as Defenders, Iron Fist, Luke Cage, Jessica Jones, which air on, or stream on Netflix, I should say, uh, whether Marvel content would be included on the new platform. And he kind of said he didn't know, like they were looking at that. But but basically, the Netflix Marvelverse is staying on Netflix for now. The Defenders is debuting in a few weeks. So a lot of pieces in play there, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, also they've got the entire Star Wars thing that they've got on there. I mean, they have pretty much all, they have all, they have all the Clone Wars on there, Mm -hmm. Um, which is a big property. Like, you just wonder what's going to stay, what's going to go. Yeah, well, for one thing. Heidi? Yes. Heidi, what are you doing? I'm not doing anything. Uh, Something sounds like you're swishing something around in the glass. One thing that... um, that Netflix mentioned is that that Disney mentioned is that Star Wars uh, or okay, excuse me let's stop entirely okay so three two one okay one thing that I was mentioned by many of my commenters is that you know if you have little kids they'll watch the same thing over and over and over again. So Disney already has Disney XD. They have the Disney channel. They have the ABC family channel. You know, if they have a streaming channel that has Frozen 2 on it and all these movies that their children are essentially babysitters, uh, it could be very popular. Um, I personally think that if there is some kind of mega Disney streaming service, it will absolutely include Marvel and Star Wars at some point because why keep the gems in the crown uh, away from your platform? And people are not necessarily going to pay $10 a month unless they're getting something that's really worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, I don't think, I could be wrong, but I don't think 
they have anything that would cause an adult to subscribe <laughs> to their service, an adult without children to subscribe to their service for like more than a month. Like I can see someone being like, okay, I pay 10 bucks and I watch all the Star Wars and all the Marvel and I'm done. Right. But I don't think anyone would stay subscribed. So that would be an interesting content thing. Yeah. You know, they, they've teamed up with BAM Tech, which is the streaming service that powers both uh, MLB dot com and the wwe streaming service both of those are extremely effective um you know have great penetration i actually have both of them uh because i'm a sports nerd and wrestling you get all these free pay-per-views so you know it's only ten dollars a month you can watch all the old raws that you watch when you were a kid so it's kind of amazing um you know i i don't know disney's as strong a brand to me as the wwe so um this fragmentization of of our streaming will continue. Uh, but meanwhile, Netflix will be streaming Mark Miller. So, <laughs> you know, well, I don't it's think a that's an amazing trade-off, but you know, <laughs> then again, Hey, no, it's not that I don't like all his comics. I just, he's, he varies. He varies in, in my opinion, in quality. Absolutely. Like sometimes he gets very impressed by the fact that he can say bad words. Yes, absolutely. He's very juvenile uh, in some of his work, but I think one of the, uh, aspects of Miller's output that probably influenced this is the fact that Old Man Logan and Civil War are two of the Marvel properties that keep selling and selling. And the movies that were based on them got amazing notices as well. Uh, you know, people mocked Mark Miller, but aside from Kick-Ass 2, which really wasn't that bad of a movie, although the comic was pretty egregious, I will say, uh, like all the movies based on Mark Miller properties have been very well reviewed and have kind of stood the test of time. You know, Wanted is definitely one of the better kind of secret assassin ninja with Angelina Jolie movies of its uh, of that genre. And Kingsman was a surprise hit that everybody found uh, quite quite entertaining. So you know, the guy's got a pedigree. Except for that one scene, but never mind. <laughs> Um, yeah, he has a pedigree. I would say he's definitely a creator to pick and choose from, and the studios have clearly picked and chosen. Um, hopefully there's enough left in the pile to make Netflix their money back. I think they think so. What'll be interesting is, like, okay, so you've got Millar World, and you've got Millar. Are they going to, like, pay him a salary? Is he going to, like, get a cut when it comes to new ideas? Or is Miller World just a stable of pre-existing stuff? to which he will be adding no content. Oh, I'm sure he'll be creating new content. Uh, you know, Mark is a pretty prolific guy, as we mentioned, so I'm sure he'll right, have but I just some new ideas coming out. If his, if his new stuff, now that Miller World is owned by Netflix, will whatever it is that he creates next go into the Miller World pile? Yeah, well, sounds like they've got an ultimate first look deal with Mark Miller. Mm. So... Uh, and you know the one, like I said, the, the both announcements were incredibly vague on any sort of details. However, Miller did mention that he was going to reestablish his trust where he's trying to renovate a small Scottish town near where he lives. So you know, however much money they he made off of this deal was enough to rebuild a small Scottish town. So let's keep that in mind. That's that's a lot of money. <laughs> Um, well, speaking of other deals with creators and ownership and sales and licensing, um, there was also kind of some a real bummer news, which was uh, that Charlotte um, McDuffie is uh, the widow of Dwayne McDuffie is suing the principals of Milestone 2.0, which includes Dennis Cowan, Derek Dingle, and Reggie Hudlin. Um, over what she says is malfeasance over the resurrection of the Milestone line at DC. Now, we've been waiting for this for a couple years now. It was announced a couple years ago that they'd be bringing back the Milestone universe. And um, then they didn't. And they haven't. And every time anyone asks about it, Jim Lee will say, it's coming soon, it's coming soon, wait, it's coming soon. He just said, he literally said that like three days before the announcement of this, this um, lawsuit. And... Um, you know, she says that it's not a lot. There's a lot of filings of this. There's the, it was a 60-page complaint. I, I actually read through the whole thing. Um, if you're like a comic book uh, legal, uh, your hobby is you know, ownership rights of old comic book lines. Why this was a treasure trove. Let's put it that way. But uh, you know, just just it's just sad, sad that it's come to this. Basically, 
so why do you think oh yeah and then also um, well I can see why legally they're leaving out Michael Davis who's pretty ticked that he's being left out but uh, legally it does not have to be in there Right. Well, he signed, you know, that was one of them. I don't know if you'd call it a bombshell, but it was kind of like, oh, that answers that question. And the filings was there is a uh, statement from Michael Davis where he assigned all of his rights to Milestone to Derek Dingle um, in 1994. So he hasn't owned any of Milestone in 23 years. Yeah, but I can, like what I'm saying is I can understand that. But, like, I'm just wondering why they thought they could leave the McDuffie estate out. They just think, well, he's dead, so it doesn't count? Well, we don't know. You know, Kate, we don't know. And I'm not going to second-guess anyone. You know, I am a judge in the McDuffie Awards. Uh, I've worked with Charlotte uh, Fullerton. Uh, she's known to, you know, she is an animation writer, a very esteemed animation writer in her own right. She's a very talented woman, very passionate about keeping... Dwayne McDuffie's legacy alive, and I have a lot of respect for her. I also have a lot of respect for for Dennis and Reggie and and Derek, you know, on the other side. So, like, I, I I'm very torn about all this. However, I will say we don't know what all the paperwork is. Um, you know, uh, the only thing there might be more paperwork that we do not see that Charlotte did not have access to that might shed more light on this. Um, but the bottom line is, it's very sad that it came yeah. to this kind of acrimony. Yeah, I wonder if part of it is that Dwayne is not here anymore, the person that they actually had a working relationship with, or or what, because it's sad. It is. It is very sad, and I hope that it's one of these things that, you know, passions are running high and that this can all be sorted out. So, um, you know, because guess what? We, I'd love to see the Milestone characters back. And I think there is no greater legacy for Dwayne McDuffie than these characters, especially Static. I mean, Static still appears in the DC Universe, correct? Um, well, last time I checked, but that was about two years ago. Mm-hmm, right. So anything could have happened since then. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's not, he was not a major character in the DC Universe, which quite frankly was a loss given just how popular his cartoon was. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you have a very popular cartoon like that, you do kind of wonder, like, why is this character not being featured more prominently in comics, being given a good writer in comics? Right. Um, it always seemed like they were kind of missing an opportunity there. Maybe they want to bring him back. I don't know. Um, but... Definitely, these characters should be in use. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, somehow this mouse, uh, this lawsuit can be sorted out, and uh, everybody can come to some kind of agreement. Yeah. Uh, to to give us new stories set in the Dakota universe. So, um, well, speaking of new stories, um, there's a big, there is a great shift happening in the manga world. Yes. Okay, so often we think of the world of manga as being like one of the last bastions of comics on paper are selling well. Um, But actually, the numbers are starting to suggest that um, digital manga is going to overtake print manga in Japan very soon, which is interesting because the manga industry has a long history of not always dealing well with digital, <laughs> like, like the, the, the up and comers, like there are always like digital startups there who are always really good with it. And like, this is for phones, but and stuff, but like the big manga companies were like these like giant behemoth corporations that only move very slowly. Um, but apparently, you know, as with a giant boulder, once you get it going, you can't stop it. And so I, I guess they finally just reached digital critical mass because they're, it looks like, according to Japan Times, um, sales for smart of comics for smartphone apps is going to overtake sales of comics in print any day now. Mm-hmm. Right. They, they showed that, that sales of digital manga books, excluding magazines, jumped 27% last year, whereas paper manga saw a record 
year-on-year decline of 7.4%. So, so digital manga sales is at 146 billion yen, print at 194 billion yen. So, wow, that is mind-boggling to us. Now, that said, we've we've talked about many times on here about how in Korea they don't have comic shops. Everybody reads comics on their phone. Yeah, but Korea Korea was experiencing a manhwa boom at the same time the digital was growing. Mm-hmm. I think it's part of it is that in Korea the infrastructure for print was weaker, so digital had a much more wide open field and less competition. Right. They did not have the massive, um, you know, legacy brands of manga that they have in Japan, even things like One Piece, obviously, and Naruto and so on. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a less, it was a, it was a less codified field. Yeah. And it's not so much just legacy brands because the brands are available on digital. It's the, the legacy infrastructure, you know, the Mm -hmm. devoted bookstores, the publishers who are in the habit of publishing and pushing print, the magazine subscriptions people already have. Right. You know, so it was a a nimbler and more Mm -hmm. open market. Right. Well, I've also understood that in Japan that they are, they don't own PCs the way we do. Like they really do get all their information through their smartphones. And so that's another reason why it's wide open for comics to infiltrate the the smartphone, uh, you know, the comics library in your pocket. Now, we haven't seen that here yet. You know, there is Webline Webtoon, which is a Korean-owned company that's trying to bring this kind of model here. We've seen a couple of other attempts, um, some successful, some definitely not successful. Uh, So I don't think the, the comics on your phone model has caught on here yet. That said, if it happens in Japan, it usually happens here 10 years later. Uh, you know, but just like the the not having a computer thing, I think there are some technical differences there. I mean, they do they do actually um, have a significant tablet market there, too. Mm-hmm. So some of these comics may be on tablets, the way digital comics are here. Uh, it's the desktop and the laptop market that seems to be much smaller right exactly yeah um well it's certainly a very eye-opening report this this uh story ran in japan times um basically i hadn't i hadn't actually even seen this until you brought it to my attention kate so uh but it's 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 wow it's got charts and graphs man i am going to study these charts and graphs oh it shows shows the the little bar that shows yep yep Boy, that digital's coming on strong, even in <laughs> Japan. Well, shocking, shocking news here, folks. Well, speaking of sales, uh, I have a sneak peek at the... Well, as you listen to this, it'll be Friday. And so the Diamonds uh, sellers for July will be coming out. And, you know, we've been talking quite a bit about the softening of the comics market here in the United States. And these numbers are still not that awesome. Uh, graphic novel sales are still down... Uh, year-to-date, 12% in dollars and 13% in units. And that's a pretty giant drop. Um, with total comic sales are down almost 9% in dollars and 3.4% in units. So we are definitely seeing a softening of the comics market here in the U.S. And even with the much-vaunted graphic novels, um, uh, you know, has anyone come up with a reason for this this decline? Well, I would be very interested to see the digital sales. I would be very interested to see whether those are lost sales or whether those were converted sales. It, well, that's interesting because Amazon definitely, which is the biggest seller of books and digital books. And of digital books. Yes. You know, now when you click on something on Amazon, it goes to the Kindle first. It does not go to the the print version of it. So you have to actively click on the print version if you want to see the price for that. Um, we have not noticed all of the studies that we have, all the uh, observational evidence, what we've seen is that people here in the U.S. still like their print comics. They like to hold the book. They like to experience the artwork on paper. They, they prefer the way that it's seen. You know, digital is seen as more of a... Uh, disposable? Disposable, yeah. That's a great way of putting it. So... 
Um, I, I'm not sure that digital, you know, the the, the numbers that ICB2 and Comicron put out uh, just before Comic-Con, um, they said that digital was flat. And I have not seen anything that indicates that digital sales are not maybe flat or up or down just a couple percentage points. I don't see mm. any, I have not heard of anything that is a giant change in digital. That doesn't mean couldn't be a giant change in digital. I'm just saying I haven't heard any because indications that, of this. Because that always seeing Kindle first and also comicsology books being bundled into that and also that they've been pushing hard. They right. had a lot of digital comic sales. Right. And another thing about comicsology that they announced at Comic-Con is they are getting a recommendation system the way that Amazon does. You know, and if you bought this, you might buy that. Uh, they're greatly strengthening the uh, algorithms that they use for that, which is really a, a, a boon to... Yes, instead to... of just suggesting same new books from the same series, right. they're suggesting other stuff as well. Right, and of course our, Amazon's algorithms for things you might like are you know, deadly. Like, if you like one pair of shoes, they are gonna, just going to keep showing you shoes until you buy shoes. And I know this from personal experience. You can delete something from the, the things they're... they're um, considering when they give you you'll like this then you like that really so i can get them stop getting them to show me that one pair of shoes that i fell in love with but can't afford yes you can and also you can get them to stop showing you that all these annoying things that are like that thing you bought your dad (laughs) right okay well that's good to know kate you have saved my my bank account and my peace of mind quite a bit with this tip um, you know, a couple of other things that affect comic sales that were in the ether over the last couple of weeks. Well, well, this week, uh, Mr. Miracle Number 1 by Tom King and Mitch Gerads came out, the team behind the Sheriff of Babylon, and it has been a smash. We have not seen a periodical comic like this get so hot in quite a while. Uh, it sold out in many, many comic About two shops. Years. Yes, and it is, what was the last one? Well, there were a couple. Um, I would say first few issues of Squirrel Girl where people were just wowed. Yeah. Um, some, I would say certain chunks of Hawkeye, um, certain chunks of Saga, depending um, yeah, stuff. It's big. But I, but I would say we haven't seen a number one like this take off really. Um, I mean, it's only been two days. I mean, it yeah, and it's could, not part of an initiative. Yeah, it could be dead That's next week. That's what makes week. it big. Yes, it's not it, part yeah. of an epic changing whatever. It's like it's just this comic is hitting big. Right. Well, it's the it's it's a comic that's selling because it's uh, creators that people want to read on a character they want to read about. It's a take that they like, and you know, Tom King. I'm waiting for that a lot. That. Hey, try that. Start again, Tom yes. King. You know, Tom King has become really a very reliable name, or at least a notable name, um, with the, the Sheriff of Babylon got him a lot of attention. Of course, his work on The Vision, which came out last year, like that was a book that didn't have huge sales, but everyone who read it loved it, and the trades have been selling very well. Uh, so this know, could be his big break. Well, I would I would say he's already writing Batman, so I would say he's already got his break. But, but I mean... Um, I meant I meant sales wise and and word of mouth like yes the publisher caught on to him before that because they're like hey have Batman but as far as well as you said the sales and the word of mouth on this is remarkable yeah um, I, I think it's I think it's not so much a break as just proof that uh well probably a couple things probably stores under ordered this book you know probably people didn't have it on their pull list probably it flew under the radar because it wasn't an event and it wasn't like a rebirth or a or a uh, Marvel whatever. And it didn't say Batman on it. And it didn't say Batman. You know, it's Mr. Miracle. It's an old Jack Kirby character. So uh, this is the incredibly healthy kind of periodical surprise. But it happens so rarely. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, like you say, this hasn't happened in two years. (laughs) So I mean, an event, a, a surprise, and an event is a surprise and an event because it's relatively rare. Right. Like, we would not be surprised if this was something that happened frequently. Right. That's true. Yeah. 
So, uh, well, I, I mean, good luck to Tom. I, I, I think he has earned this kind of respect, uh, definitely with the vision. I think that was the one that kind of made people say, wow, this guy really rethought the vision and made him amazing. So he could probably do the same for Mr. Miracle. And uh, I, I get some uh, review copies of DC Comics, but this comic did not come. I didn't get that or the Elmer Fudd Batman uh, team up also by Tom King that people have been raving about as the comic I believe of the year. we have the Elmer Fudd Batman in the office, Heidi. Well, I, it wasn't in the pile that I looked at, so it got it got spirited away. What can I say? Aww. But uh, anyway, I, I, it's nice. It's nice to see uh, a good guy like Tom uh, King get get this kind of attention. Um, yeah, but uh, you know the periodical like two years ago when Calvin was on vacation, Kate and I did a long talk about the periodical comic it was called the fate of the floppy and we both talked about our experience with it and uh, that's episode 167 by the way if you want to go back and listen to it i think it's still a very cogent conversation that we had and um it you know i don't know they the the all signs point to the periodical comic still being a little bit of an endangered species i think I mean, I don't know endangered species of the world word. I think it's experiencing market contraction and consolidation. Let's put it that way. Right. That's right. It was a niche product to begin with, and now it's it grew, and now it's sort of a niche product again, maybe. Yeah. And, and you know, there's bizarre stories that came out. Like, like this week, there was kind of an investigation of why there's no Fantastic Four comic. Well... To be fair, the last time the FF was published, it didn't sell very well. And uh, Fox put out a Fantastic Four movie that was really bad. So it yeah. wasn't really on the upswing. It was sort of universally hated. Yes, it was. And the, and in this the course of this investigation, for the first time, Jonathan Hickman, who was writing the FF when it disappeared, confirmed that the reason why the comic had been canceled and uh, many of the licenses had been pulled was that it was a Fox movie and Marvel does not want to promote the characters that are owned by Fox. You know, this has also affected the X-Men, but they are so popular that people, you know, Marvel can't entirely do away with the X-Men. But they keep trying with the Inhumans. Like, the Inhumans at San Diego, the Inhumans were everywhere. And, I mean, have and you... no one cares. I know. Have you seen the trailer for the show? Have you seen the wigs for the show? I don't know. You know, poor... I don't even know her name, but the woman who plays Medusa said it was like having a dead cat on her head. And uh, Jeff And Loeb, she's Medusa. Her yeah. powers are her hair. Yeah. How yeah. could you not get a good wig for Medusa? Well, what are you smoking? Well, Jeff Loeb, who is, uh, runs Marvel TV, uh, came out and said... Uh, it's not finished yet, people. Give us a chance. And I felt a little bad for Jeff because, um, you know, he's turned out some pretty good TV shows in his day. Some not so good, but the guy definitely knows how to make TV. And, uh, you know, sometimes you can't make chicken feather, chicken salad out of chicken feathers. So good luck with that. I just, I just feel like the Inhumans and the attempt to push the Inhumans is so- somehow cursed. Yes. Like, like. It, everything it touches turns to dirt. Yeah, well... I, I don't know why, it just does. Well, there hasn't been... You know, the comics are not selling that well. The Royals wasn't selling very well. Um, you know, They did all these individual books based on the characters, and they also have been going down the charts, and the they TV show... They Johnny Storm in it, thinking, hey, people like Johnny Storm, maybe they'll <laughs> buy it. Yeah, nothing has worked. Yeah. You know what? Maybe they need to put Tom King on the Inhumans. You know, let's have some simple ideas. Uh, maybe that's what we need to do. But, um, yeah, I mean, this what is... What kind of talent are they putting on the books? You know, listen, they had the Royals came out with Al Ewing, who's certainly a very uh, respected writer. I, I do not recall the name of the artist offhand because a lot of Marvel's artists, to me, are not as notable. But, um, you know, they gave it a fair shake. They had Warren Ellis is writing Karnak. I mean, you know, it's not like they haven't given it a shot. It's just nothing seems to have taken. Yeah, I mean, at a certain point, it doesn't matter how much you like the metal men. If, <laughs> if, if, if you, no matter who you put on it, people are probably not going to buy it. Right. 
Right. Uh, well, there's so many different things at play in this whole world of comics publishing right now. And, yeah. and in the case of Marvel, things that we don't even see happening, like this whole Fantastic Four mess and whatever is driving this Inhumans push and all of that. So. And, and speaking of things that are probably just never going to sell, there was a look this week. Was it this week? Yeah, it was this week. At what sells and what does not sell Image Comics. Well, that was um, a creator named Rich Tommaso uh, who put a post up on Facebook that was, we see these periodically and your heart goes out because it's basically saying he's had it, you know, and he he even mentions feeling suicidal about this, but uh, he, like the sales of his new book which is called Spy Seal, just did not meet his expectations. And he's very, very despondent over this. And it drew a huge response from his fellow creators who reached out to comfort him, uh, drew a ton of think pieces and hot takes and cold takes. And, um, you know, this is... Rich is a very talented guy. Uh, he's He's worked quite a bit in... Uh, the indie world, but I mean more like the literary indie world. I know he had some books come out for Fantagraphics, and um, he's worked with them, but he's also worked with Scholastic and, and, and pretty much every publisher out there. The guy has a really beautiful uh, line. Uh, he can draw pretty much anything. And yet, you see at midlife, in mid-career, someone looking at their sales and just saying, what am I doing here? Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say, having looked at the pages of Spy Seal, I don't know it's a good fit for Image. And I don't know that Spy Seal is the most commercial use of his talents. I mean, obviously this man is, is probably not suited to, say, superheroes. But I could see, like, literary adaptations from him selling really well. Um, spy Seal is about a seal who's a spy. <laughs> and it looks like a European comic. Yeah, it's very Tintin. Tintin influenced. It's it's but more more arty more arty, um and I mean it's beautiful but it does not scream I am commercial at me like I I'm I feel really bad for him, but if I were his agent I'd be like have you considered literary adaptations? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I think that maybe it is time to take a little career retrospective and see what is the best use of your time. Um, a lot of creators like jump back and forth between like doing commercial work, especially in the kids' book field, which seems to be doing a little bit better than the adult graphic novel field right now, or doing video games, or doing um, you know character designs, or doing some of these other kind of like work for hire jobs that pay well, and uh, then they do their comics kind of in their spare time or as a, a labor of love and. And not um, only that, it can raise your profile. It can, it can. And, uh, you, you know, I, I just uh, was talking to uh, there, you know, I live very near uh, the School of Visual Arts, which has a huge comics program and turns out tons of cartoonists every year. They, they had a little program that was actually for their high school program. They, they fly in students from all over the country. They, they, uh, who are still in high school and they get to live in New York for three weeks and create comics and do God knows what. Uh, but um, anyway, I was talking to some of them and, and like they are so talented. They these We've talked about this in the podcast before, but these, ca- car, these cartooning schools like the Center for Cartoon Studies and School of Visual Arts and MCAD in Baltimore and uh, SCAD in Savannah – they are turning out so many talented cartoonists they're really the market cannot absorb all of them and um i mean it's a great problem to have when there's too many talented people but but you know we're we're definitely going through some readjustments of expectations on a lot of levels yeah well i think for one having spoken to some of these <clears throat> graduates for example uh, Ngozi Ukazu, who is the creator of Check Please and is currently very successful on Kickstarter, said that in her graphic novel program, they walked them through the commercialness of it all. Mm-hmm. Through, you know, how to do a Kickstarter, how to do a campaign, how to do social media for your stuff. On the understanding this is a skill that you need to know to survive in the industry these days. Mm-hmm. Right, absolutely. And 
uh, I mean, I've spoken at SVA and, and at CCS, and they, the students there do go through a business class. And yeah. when I've, you know, I've lived here for a long time, more than a decade. When I first started talking to SVA students, if one of them had a business card, you'd be shocked. Now they all have business cards. They all have websites. They all have tumblers. You know, they've done all the things that you have to do, but so has everyone else. So, Well, oddly enough, I think a lot of the older pros haven't. Yes, you might. And <laughs> so I feel like this um, younger, slightly more educated in the practicalities of a generation may edge out some older indie people who are going to feel uncomfortable because they have not learned those skills. You know, that is a brilliant observation, Kate. And I will tell you, I saw another cartoonist of, uh, uh, let's say, my generation, the Tabasso generation, you know, a decade, give or take a decade. Um, struggling to put up a WordPress site and asking his peers for help. And, um, you know, I guarantee you all the kids know how to do WordPress. I mean, I'm not putting it down. Not everybody knows how to do WordPress, but... And if you can't do WordPress, dude, there are a lot of newer, more user-friendly methods you can use if you can't handle it. It's not like the old days where it's WordPress or die. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, then there's Blogger or Die or, uh, you know, GeoCities. I mean, just make sure if I was giving any advice, it's like make sure you have some kind of platform where you can save your content, not let it just die if suddenly AOL or Yahoo or whoever decides to take it away. You know, I mean, that's the danger of a lot of backups. Save backups. Yes, yes, yes. And, um, you know, I mean, we could go and talk about for an hour about WordPress. Well, yeah, I mean, it's quite simply if the method you're using can't be backed up, Take a different method. Yes, exactly. That's, that's all. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, you're abs- you're you're right. There's so many tools that uh, younger cartoonists are taking advantage of, and I do feel there's kind of a there's kind of a dip. There's like a dip in the careers of a lot of indie cartoonists that uh, are you know maybe post forty. Where you've been doing this for 20 years, and you're like, okay, where is that payoff? And then it doesn't become doesn't come because unfortunately, that's kind of where this where this field is at this point. It's like unless you're doing, you know, unless you're a Doug Tennaple and you're doing your seven book series for Scholastic Kids books, you know, you're not going to get like a gigantic contract. Um, so I think a lot of and, and a lot of people are feeling kind of frustrated and yeah, are well, caught in this the- trough. Yeah, well, the thing is that the money doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from readers. Yes. And, you know, you if, if you want to get paid, which is an understandable thing to want, you have to think about, I mean, I don't mean like crass, oh, crass commerciality. I don't mean that. You just have to think about, like, who would this appeal to who would read it? Right. And if the answer is not many people and you want to live strictly on your books, then maybe while you continue this passion project, you have to consider a form of comics that might have a larger revenue stream. I mean, it's it, it's kind of the way you have to think about a career. Yeah, and I, I mean, I don't want to... Um, I don't want to endorse just having a totally crass outlook on this either. Um, but at some point... You know, just having image on the title does not mean that it's going to sell no. a lot of comics. And I... Credit Image for putting yes. out uh, cartoonists like Rich Tommaso and like, you know, Ted McKeever. He, I mean, he's another one who's retired because he felt he wasn't finding his audience. He's also in that kind of same same age group also. Um, I, there's Jimmy Robinson. There's actually quite a few creators who are who are finding their audience isn't automatic. And they're some of my favorites. I mean, I love Jimmy Robinson. I love Ted McKeever. I, I absolutely adore their work. And I think it should find a new audience. And But at the same time, yeah, you have to kind of just be like, why is this not working? Or why, you know, what what is, what what are the pros and cons of this? And be practical about it. I I I mean, I understand why someone puts out kind of a cry for help like Tommaso did, and he got a lot of support, and I I think that was really wonderful to see. But um, you know, at some point also, it's like, you know, what are the next steps? You have an immense amount of talent, and what are the next steps really? In yeah, the, in the current marketplace, right? And I mean, I'm going to be honest. I don't think there ever was a marketplace in comics which was really easy 
and well-paying for somebody with very, very niche indie work. And however brilliant that niche indie work is, you have to think about how to get to your audience. And it's not just what your work is, but who you're selling it through. Mm -hmm. Like, Image is a wonderful publisher, but Image is aimed at the comic shop market and at the kind of books that sell well in both the comic shop market and the bookstore. Well, image is, is image is not it's indie, but it's a specific flavor of indie that does well in image. Well, I like, would, I would. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, Kate. I mean, I would say something like Rich Tomaso's work, which looks more Euro literary comic, would probably do better at uh, one of the publishers that does a lot more work that looks like that. Who, who already know how to market that. Well, I was going to say, I, I would. The, there was one time when it was easy to sell stuff. That's when Image first launched. And if you look at the sales figures, you know, a book like The Max came out or by Sam Keith, which was like this, you know, it was a superhero title. But if you ever read it, it was a really weird superhero title. It sold like a million copies. Uh, got turned into a cartoon on MTV. Would it sell a million copies now? No. Would it sell like a top superhero title? Oh, I don't know. I mean, Sam Keith keeps putting out books, so I don't know. But I, basically, it was a very strange time. It only lasted for about a year, and then it ended. And yeah, I I think that Image is potentially has the has some penetration to sell different kinds of books. I mean, I think Image should look take a look at themselves and see, you know, what the kind of books that they are selling in the book market also. Because, I mean, this is def- Spy Seal is definitely something that will do better as a, as a collected edition, I believe. But I'll also say this. You know, you can't sleep. You can't sleep. It, it, the competition is too fierce. It's like if you have a book that people aren't really into for whatever reason from panel one page one it's like they're going to put it down they're going to watch netflix or they're going to watch the wwe network or they're going to you know play a video game i mean you can't sleep you have to you know yeah and to be fair listeners don't owe you attention readers don't owe your your attention like there's there's a lot of people out there sure but at the end of the day, like, why should they read it if it doesn't, if they don't enjoy it? Right. That's you know? absolutely right. You know? So, and I think, uh, I think just being honest about what, who's your audience and what they're reading. And sometimes it's very painful, but sometimes it has to be done. So. Yeah. Anyway. But I mean, I do think, I do think if I were his agent, I would say you should look at a different publisher. Yeah. I don't think image is a good fit. And maybe a different publisher might steer him in the direction of something that he would enjoy making that also might be a good fit commercial. Well, I'll say this. You know, Tommaso put out two previous books at Image. One of them was called She-Wolf and the other was called Dark Corridor. Dark Corridor was actually very well reviewed. It did good. It was the kind of dark thriller that Image sells really well. Spy Seal is a kid's book. Uh, kind of take in this like more Tintin type style. Image talked about putting out kids books and like strengthening that side of their business for a long time and they haven't done it yet. So, you know, you know, you know, I I, I think it's just like by magic that suddenly people think, oh, oh, Image puts out some pretty good kids book. You know, it's more of a, uh, there needs to be some groundwork. There needs to be some recon and there, you know, it's not just going to happen by magic. So, no, it does not does not happen by magic. Yes. So, well, anyway, uh, looks like we are uh, getting down to the wire here. So, uh, Kate, you have some briefs this week, or a brief. I have a brief. Um, so, on this podcast, we have talked about pioneering shoujo manga creator Moto Hagio, who created comics that looked like pure sugar, but read like gauzy psychological horror and they're really really brilliant works she's won a lot of awards she hasn't been that visible with new work recently but one of the series that really made her famous is known as the the poe clan which incidentally we had just mentioned on this podcast like a month and a half ago because they announced they were going to make it into a musical and we were like, what? <laughs> right, um, right. But I guess they knew something we didn't because she's bringing the series back and not just in side stories, 
But she kind of ended on like a leaving it hanging note where she had this sort of ambiguous vampire family with a unhappy underage vampire in it. <laughs> um, and it just sort of ended on like left it hanging back in the 70s. And I guess now in her 60s, she's looking at it and she decided to go back to it and is picking up the main thread of the story again. And it was a huge seller at the time. It, it may sell again. Um, she's a really great creator. It's interesting when people actually go back, truly go back and not just like for a one-off right. to the work that made them famous from a different perspective. I know. And I love, see, this is what I love in comics. I love when a great creator like Hageo can have this amazing career and then come back and revisit some of the stuff and, the, and, you know, there's still a market for it. And I mean, obviously, revisiting your old hits can be a very frustrating process also. But I, I like I, I'm glad that the, her career is so exemplary. And so, uh, you know, her audience is strong enough that that she can have this kind of like, like revisiting, um, yeah. which is unfortunately way more common in Japan than it is here in the American market. Yeah, well, I mean, I what's also very heartening about it is the reviews I've read, which are universally positive, at least the ones I've read in English, I don't read Japanese, um, are saying that not only is it artistically very good and picks up where the last left off, but that it's going at it from a slightly different perspective, like looking at it almost from a, a different view now that years have passed in her life, um, artistically and perspective-wise on the story. And it's it's an interesting shift and actually is working artistically. They're, they're really liking it. So uh, points to her. Maybe someday we'll see this comic in the United States. Yeah, I hope so. Um, well, I'd also, I have a little note. I mean, we've talked about bad cons and con culture and convention culture so much. Uh, I can't let Fandom Fest go unmentioned. And this is the latest. I, you know, there is. It, it is these stories of cons gone wrong. People just love them. There's something so fascinating about when a convention goes bad. And um, Fandom Fest had. I, I the people who went actually had a pretty good time. Uh, it had some organizational difficulties, but there was two things about it. Number one, uh, they never they announced a lot of guests like Weird Al Yankovic and um, some other huge. Let's see, where's uh, I have a couple names here, but anyway, Weird Al was the headliner. Uh, Burt Ward, some of the Beauty and the Beast cast members. They announced them as guests. People purchased autograph and photo opportunities with these guests, pro, you know, in advance, and then the guests canceled because they never had contracts. They never had their air, their airline tickets paid for. They never had hotel accommodations and you know nerd liberties have to have that they don't you know they know when they don't get a hotel room maybe they shouldn't go to the con and however the people who bought the advanced tickets were left uh like they could substitute it but they couldn't get any refunds and the people who ran the con were like well that's their tough tough crap you know they they signed this thing which is totally not the way most cons are run. But even weirder, it, the con was held in a abandoned Macy's at the mall. Like, it was supposed to be at the con local convention center in Louisville, but at the last moment, they moved it to this Macy's. And I, I, it's just the pictures. You know, when you see this Comic-Con set up around the, um, you know, the counters and the, the floor displays of a Macy's, it's just eerie, and it definitely is one for the books. Yeah, I mean, but also, when you said things were canceled, I think I need to, to add a little something to that for the listeners. It's not just like, oh, I don't want to go anymore because Burt Ward's not going. Oh, no. If you paid money specifically to see Burt Ward, well, they weren't giving that money back. Well, that's it, exactly. And, I mean, there's two there's two issues here. Like, if you buy a ticket to a con convention, as with buying a ticket to a movie or an airline ticket or any kind of ticket, it's like you don't get a refund if you cancel. You know, that's kind of how it is in all aspects when you buy a ticket to an event. And that's understandable. What we're talking about is they bought photo ops. Like I said at 2 o'clock on Saturday, I'm paying $40 and I'm getting my photo with Burt Ward. Now Burt Ward isn't there. And it's like, oh, well, you can have your photo taken with brimstone uh or someone who you don't want your photo taken with and you don't get a refund and i have surveyed many 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 convention throwers this is by far 
not the way the industry is run. And you don't do that. No. And I would say to anyone out there, if you ever sign up for a photo op or an autograph that is non-refundable, do not go to that con. This is not the industry best practices. Yeah, but they don't always tell you that it's non-refundable. Right. right. That's right. So um, read the fine print and don't go to that con because it is a con. It is con cons. Yeah. Now, I will say, I kind of am charmed by the abandoned Macy's idea. So <laughs> I think I think that works better. Like, like I would be rooting for them if it were, like, an indie con on a shoestring, where I'd be like, yeah, A-plus of using your resources. But if you're like, we're going to be at the Expo Center, we're going to have Burt Ward, and then you're like, ha-ha, psych, we're in an abandoned Macy's. At that point, yeah, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what, just before we sign off, just a very quick plug uh, for FlameCon, uh, which I don't a think... A small we'll ha- con that goes well. That goes brilliantly, and uh, it'll be held not this weekend, but uh, in two weeks, uh, it will be... 19th and 20th. Yes, and uh, I, uh, do you, the location is... Do you know the name of the hotel, Kate? Or uh, It escapes me, but it's on Adams Street in downtown Brooklyn. Yeah. It's right near the courthouse, and... A, beautiful neighborhood with lots of food yes it is it is at the hold on i'm looking it up and it, there is lots of food that's for something that heidi is always very big on uh it is well they don't say right on the front page where it's <laughs> god darn it uh well it will be at the brooklyn bridge marriott there you go and it is billed as FlameCon, the world's largest queer Comic-Con, and uh, it is incredibly inclusive, incredibly diverse, and incredibly fun. So, Yeah, I've been there um, both years of its operation, and I enjoyed it very much. I am moving heaven and earth to make sure I can get there on Sunday. Well, we and will, it is worth it. Yes. Well, hopefully we will both be there, and we will. And in the past, we brought you some interviews from FlameCon, so hopefully we'll have some more. So... Uh, but yes, check it out, FlameCon, a good con. Uh, well, that's it, Kate. I guess we managed to survive a week without Calvin. Yes, yes, we did. And even when Calvin returns, there will be more to come.